Welcome to Artelligence, the podcast of art news, art in America, and Art Market Monitor. I'm Marion Maneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art world. Ed Dolman has been the CEO of Phillips Auction House since 2014. He will become the executive chairman in September of 2021. Prior to that, Ed spent 27 years at Christie's Auction House, the final 11 as its CEO. He has also served as the head of Qatar's Museums Authority. It's safe to say that Ed has a unique perspective on the fine art auction industry. Ed, it's nice to see you again, at least virtually. It's great to be with you again. So you are um, one of the three big auction houses, and you made it through lockdown in a slightly different manner than the two larger uh, houses. And by that, I mean both uh, Sotheby's and Christie's were able to survive and cope and run interesting hybrid sales. And you did some of the, the same, but you also seem to grow in this period in a way that, uh, in part because of their size and the occluded uh, market, your um, competitors uh, were not able to grow. And so I'd be very curious to hear sort of what the uh, uh, the lockdown was like for you and, and how it, it sort of came to pass that you were able to gain at least, if not market share, which I think you, you probably did, um, at least, you know, bigger lots and more consequential lots across a wider range of stocks. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's very difficult to be positive in any way about the impact of the pandemic. And so, you know, I can't for a second sort of diminish the impact um, that it's had on so many people. Um, but as you say, for us, um, at Phillips, it was, it was um, in a way, an extraordinary vindication of, of a number of the things that we had already been putting into place over the last few years, um, which, you know, the, the sort of the advantages that we had of focusing on six specific areas of 20th and 21st century art. So we, we, we really do sort of focusing on, I think, a growing, the growing art collecting categories and the categories that are collected specifically sort of globally now. Um, we focused on those and we had introduced what we call the Digital First Initiative some years ago. So by the time the pandemic struck, you know, people were already able to watch auctions on um, their mobile phones at Philips and actually bid directly into the rooms um, via their apps. And so I think these two things, you know, really, really set us up pretty well as, you know, the world came to a halt last March and people started interacting in a different way. And I think the younger um, art collectors who Philips and our brand tends to resonate more with than anybody else, found the transition into that sort of digital space and the ability to buy and transact online sort of much easier than in other collecting categories. Um, and I think you know, that in a nutshell, I think was, uh, was the reason why at the end of the year, we were surprised, frankly, um, at how well things had gone. You. Uh, in the past, I've had uh, a number of very big lots, but they were more on occasion or part of a, a, a specific collection. 
but certainly in the last group of sales, you've had a greater number of sort of low eight-figure uh, to mid eight-figure lots. Uh, I'm thinking of the David Hockney, a Clifford Still, some Joan Mitchell paintings. You've certainly been able to set records in your auctions for um, artists like Ruth Asawa uh, or uh, uh, even Amy Sherald. Uh, so you, you've sort of been able to move up um, to higher price points uh, in the, uh, uh, the representation side. Sorry about that. Are you uh, uh, are you able to access those lots better now because of performance, because of relationships, because of change in the marketplace? All of the above, I would say. I mean, I think I think fundamentally, um, we are still even in this virtual digital world in in a relationship business and. Um, we have um, at Philips a really great group of um, specialist business getters who have been in the business for a long time. The Shea and Westphals, the Robert Manleys, the Jean-Paul Engelens, um, the Olivia Thorntons, the Jonathan Crockett's in, uh, in Hong Kong. And, and you know, they maintain, maintain relationships at the highest level with, with the same great collectors that our, our competitors do. So, you know, Philips is in the conversation um, with these collectors when it comes to them to decide to sell something special. Um, and then quite often these big consignments go down or these big ticket um, lots go down to the financial deal and how your guarantee stacks up and how you can arrange the financing behind the deal. And we, we are as adroit at that as anybody else. And so I think, you know, we, nothing is stopping us um, from competing flat out at that area of the market. Um, and obviously the, uh, the December sale, as it turned out, in uh, New York last year was a, was a real triumph for us. And uh, as you say, the, result, the, the Hockney was a spectacular result. But what I think is more interesting, in a way, um, to me, is the exponential growth we've seen um, at the lower end of the market. Our day sales and our new now sales have grown um, enormously. And it's a very good, fast-moving uh, growth area for us. Um, and frankly, the, uh, the revenues and the commissions are better at that end of the market. Um, and we actually, in a way, to sort of supercharge uh, this growing interest um, that we see uh, at the other end of the contemporary art market. We introduced uh, a Gallery One last year, which is a sort of rolling online sale of uh, contemporary art that changes effectively with a new drop every week. So, you know, it, it's, uh, no, I mean, I'm very pleased with, uh, with that performance last year. I have to say, uh, Ed, I'm very impressed that you've you've got with the lingo of the NFT uh, world with the drop uh, and all. See, you know, you're staying right ahead of that curve with where it's all going. But I, I mean, I'm kidding a little bit, but it is very interesting that, you know, Phillips's strength has always been creating markets for young artists, 
uh, responding to demand from collectors to access work that um, uh, hasn't necessarily been sold uh, at auction uh, before. And I think we've also seen a kind of interesting shift. Again, in that December sale, you had a large number of you know, African diaspora artists, African-American artists, African artists, young uh, artists and historical artists, all making um, significant numbers in your day sale, somewhat out of the view of the, you know, the publicity, but significantly, you know, uh, where everyone's watching in this market, seeing that that happening. Is that a shift for you in terms of who the specialists are, or is it just being good at being on the ground and knowing what the um, collectors want and being able to access the, the right lots for them? I think it's really part of, um, of Philip's DNA and who we are. I mean, we, we tend to employ um, people who are really interested in you know, what's happening in the market and what's likely to be happening next in the market. I mean, that's what drives so many of the people that work in our contemporary art department. And we, we've always had our finger on the pulse, I think, in terms of, of, of seeing what's going on and uh, how taste is changing and, and what our sort of um, what collectors are looking for next. And so I think Phillips has had a tradition of being very good at spotting um, where the market's going. and. You know, we, we are pretty good, I think, at, uh, at selecting the right artists at the right moment to, to seize the new taste changes that are going on. So I think it's been part of our DNA. Was, you know, I started working for Philips almost seven years ago now, but it was something that had been established by my predecessors uh, and Simon de Puri and others. And, and, and really, it is what Philips is all about that, uh, you know, what's happening now and what might be happening next in the contemporary art market. You know, Philips has been there and is known for that. And I think in a way that's what makes our brand and our proposition resonate so well in Asia, because I think in particular that's what um, new collectors in that part of the world are looking for. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned Asia because it seems that the Asian market is driving a great deal of the taste right now, and in a surprising way. I mean, it, it, it started and people were fixated on, you know, artists like Cause gaining prominence through through Asia, but many of those African diaspora uh, uh, artists are collected by uh, buyers in Hong Kong and Singapore, that uh, uh, the interest in Eddie Martinez, certainly the Matthew Wong interest is both American and, and, and Asian. And you guys did a, um, a, a, a deal or, or developed a relationship with Poly Auction, uh, I believe the largest uh, uh, Chinese auction house, uh, just last year, and you're continuing uh, through. And, and it certainly felt like in, in that first auction in Hong Kong that there was a lot of bidding coming through Beijing, through Poly, and that you were tapping into a large surprisingly unaccessed market. I would have thought, you know, uh, uh, you were already quite good at reaching the collectors in mainland China, but the, the poly relationship certainly seemed to move it up a level. Could you tell us a little bit about how that started and then uh, what effect you think it's having on your sales? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it started because I think, you know, everyone uh, in our business realizes that in a way, um, 
you know, the first access to this huge growing uh, mainland Chinese collector market, um, you know, is the way to success. And, you know, we've, we've been looking at ways of unlocking that potential, you know, for many years. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we have looked at what we could be doing at Poly for some time. You know, we got to know them and in the end, um, we got to know them well enough to, um, to collaborate in this way, which I think is incredibly exciting because the secret of an auction, it's a really very simple thing. You just need as many bidders as you can possibly can. You need to find as many people that you can engage um, in the process of bidding at auction as you can. Simple as that. And, uh, you know, for us to effectively through Polly, you know, un uh, uh, discover a completely new pool of bidders who really wanted to actively engage with us in the contemporary art market was really exciting. And you're right, Marinette, the, um, the, the striking thing about the sale that we had with them, the first one we had at the end of last year, was just the depth of the bidding and some of the prices we got. And, uh, you know, we, we made an extraordinary price for a NARA the second highest price ever at auction. Um, and that was driven by a mainland Chinese buyer competing against you know, a traditional buyer of Philips. And that was exactly um, the dynamic that we wanted to create in that collaboration. So I'm fantastically excited about the potential of this, um, especially for our June sale coming up actually, where for the first time we'll see you know, a room full of bidders in Beijing and a room full of bidders in Hong Kong and then live streamed around the world, you know, competing for the works of art we have in our sale. It's, it's a really important moment, I think. And do you think that's being helped by the hybrid auctions that, you know, this, this change we've had where it seems, and I, I, you forgive me, I'm always skeptical of the numbers there. They've gotten enormous and I know some of them are like through Facebook and all that. But even if you, even if you discount those enormous numbers, they're still extraordinary for what we normally think of as an auction uh, audience. You know, we've been uh, webcasting auctions for 15 years now, maybe 10, I can't uh, remember. And I would have guessed the audiences were in the, you know, five to 10,000, and those would have been, people would have been ecstatic about numbers like that. Now we're hearing, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of live streams, um, which suggests that there's both a, a large audience for uh, participating, but also just the spectacle of it, uh, getting information from the auctions themselves, watching them and seeing uh, who the specialists are as as proxies for the bidders, and you know, just sort of uh, engaging in the market in a way that you can't really, um, you know, accept in a uh, in a live room. Uh, but I assume too that one of the features of Poly uh, bringing those buyers is that they have. Uh, you know, it's a high touch business and you've got people at Poly who've got clients and they've been speaking to their clients and talking to them about the lots that they're interested in, giving them a sense of what might happen with the bidding and really engaging them so that when the lot comes up, they're there on the telephone to bid and maybe get those extra two or three bids that they might not have if they didn't have someone uh, uh, working with them and all. 
Um, so how, how as, a, as an auction house, do you manage those layers of engagement? Uh, as you just described, if you're going to have a room full of people in Beijing, a room in Hong Kong, people in New York, uh, bidders in, in, in London and all, in your, um, one of your sales, you had an internet bidder from Samoa. So you know, it's, it is a far-flung uh, uh, a group of uh, buyers. How do you manage that internally you know, on the phones, in, in the auction room, to get the best result for your clients? Well, I mean, I think the... The live streaming of the um, of the auctions has um, well the concept of the live streaming because you're absolutely right. I mean, live streaming the sales had been live streamed for some time before, but the you know um, necessity is the mother of all invention. And I think when uh, the pandemic struck and we could we really sort of ramped up the um, auction experience with, with, with effectively TV studio production, um, and then had to start marketing these events in a different way, which implied much greater levels of accessibility for lots of people. Um, that certainly started sort of triggering in the minds of lots of people, well, why don't I tune in and see what's going on there? Um, I too am a little bit skeptical about some of the numbers I read about sort of millions of people ch tuning in. And I actually do think, as a slight tangent, um, we're going to continue to see the live streamed auction event honed um, as we go through because, you know, frankly, sales that last four or five hours aren't exactly must see viewing for lots of people. So I think. Uh, I think there's a little bit of fine tuning that we need to do there because the sales are almost by nature slower. The bidding is slower. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted to ask you something about that because I, I do think, you know, as we've watched these evolve, uh, I, I felt the exact same thing. We can't live through five hours of, of selling. And I had, had expected sales to move towards a more frequent calendar. Uh, you were talking about drops, maybe, you know, monthly sales of a smaller size that could be done in an hour with, you know, a mix of lots, less categorized and more about, you know, the reaching the audience. Uh, but but after December, it felt like uh, all three auction houses were somewhat exhausted from the experience. Uh, admittedly, a lot of improvisation, a lot of uh, uh, unknown going from being shut down to in, in late June, suddenly scrambling to put on as many sales to generate, uh, you know, for your clients and at, for your business as much uh, revenue as possible. And so then there was a pause. And instead of there being more frequent sales uh, uh, organized for 2021, we seem to have gone back to the traditional sales calendar, or at least provisionally. Uh, you guys are are doing this June sale in part to highlight your new headquarters, I'm assuming, um, but you're slightly off the calendar in the sense that New York will be in June rather than New York in May. Uh, but it is a more traditional calendar where I would have thought we would have moved to, towards something new and shorter. Was there any thinking behind that or is that just sort of the way it all landed? No, I think, I think we will see the sales calendar fragment um, over the next few years. I think it's, uh, it's, it's one of the big learnings from the last 12 months, actually, um, how little the timing of sales really cares to, uh, our clients really care about that. It doesn't inhibit their bidding in any way. Um, yeah, the sales events in New York 
and London and then subsequently Hong Kong tended to be driven by slightly absurd local sort of traditions about when you know bank holidays or or public holidays occurred and when sort of the season happened to be in in New York or London which frankly it's increasingly um, irrelevant with with so many clients participating in the sales from all over the world you know who frankly wouldn't know when Memorial Day was in the United States and so you know the the that sort of rather old-fashioned way of looking at the calendar has gone and it was proved absolutely um, during the pandemic that as sales became dislocated by you know the logistical problems and all the other problems that we had and we started running sales in not in atypical times of years without any problems at all um, I can't see um, the traditional sales calendar lasting in the form that you've seen it over the last you know, kind of 40, 50 years. Um, I think it's gone back a little bit because um, the high value sales in particular are limited by you know, your ability to, to gather material for that sale. And it does tend to take a little bit longer to, to put together a group of works that would you know, look and feel like a typical evening sale. You know, you can't just throw those together. You know, they don't come to market very often. There aren't that, they aren't that big in number. So, you know, as these things are, are pulled together for one auction, it tends to, to, to demand a certain amount of time to put it together, a certain time to market, and so you get these sort of fewer events. Um, I'm not sure... Um, when the market picks up again, I think we will quickly see all sorts of different um, sales appearing in the calendar. I mean, there's so much happened last year that, that, that sort of completely sort of detonated people's traditional view of how sort of high-end fine art auctions run. Um, the sales calendar is certainly one of those things that's going to change. But... There's also the uh, swing back to the traditional. You're opening a new space uh, effectively right next door or on top of or underneath your old sp uh, space that's been planned for, for quite some time. Well, I, I presume was sort of planned with a different era in, in mind. It is a, a large, um, uh, I don't know what it's going to be built out like, but a, a large space uh, uh, beneath the um, office buildings and residential tower uh, just behind you and with that cube on the corner of Park Avenue. as uh, Is that going to just be a showcase or is that also going to be a um, auction room? No, it's definitely going to be an auction room. Um, you know, we're all hoping that as we return to something more like normality, people will return into the auction rooms and will sit during the auctions and bid in the traditional way. Um, I think that's an important dynamic and people love doing it and seeing it and there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that going forward. I mean, the sale will be enhanced though with all the sort of learnings of the last year in terms of production and the capabilities of people to bid you know, um, over the web um, from all parts of the world, that will be there. But we'll also see live auctions taking place. Um, and I do think it's very important for us to maintain really sort of um, the highest quality exhibition spaces we can, because no matter how sophisticated, you know, the world becomes in terms of 
allowing people to view uh, works of art uh, remotely over um, the web and over their PCs and via their mobile phones. Uh, there's frankly no substitute for standing in front of a, of a masterpiece and just getting a sense of, of what it actually is. And you need, you need exhibition spaces to do that. I mean, our exhibition space in 432 um, is going to be fabulous. It's got very high ceilings, sort of column-free. It's like a big box, um, you know, purpose-built for, for viewing substantial pieces of contemporary art. And it's smaller in scale, though. I mean, it is not, you know, perhaps 15, 20 years ago, you might have been looking at 100,000 square feet or 150,000 square feet of space. Um, that's not the case here. It's uh, 35,000 square feet, which is a, a relatively modest but incredibly high quality exhibition space, which I think is much more in line with where the market is today. Does that include, you have, a, you have a, built a building in London, you now have this new space in, in New York, you have a, a space in ha Hong Kong, uh, is there a sense of where this you view the center any longer? I mean, a, a few years ago, we would have said New York is definitely the center of the business. You're a, 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 a British company, but you do a lot of business in, in, in New York. Your competitors are sort of half. One's an American company that does business in London, and one's a British company that does business uh, in New York. And Hong Kong was always an important part of the mix, but something that was perspective. Hong Kong now seems to be bordering on the sales that we might use as the bellwethers. There's certainly more excitement coming out of the, those sales and more unexpected things happening uh, uh, in them. It, it, uh, is it still this sort of balance between the three? Is it a sense of kind of the migration from uh, you know the, the old centers to eventually the new center? I think that's it. I mean, I think you're looking at um, a migration, as you say. I think it's a redistribution of, of buyers um, and sellers, frankly. And, uh, you know, you could look back in very broad and uh, general terms, say that uh, the, the, you know, the, the sellers in the first half of the 20th century were the Europeans and the buyers were the Americans. Um, that continued until this century. And now I think we're seeing, you know, a new massive buying community in Asia with Europe and the United States increasingly becoming sellers into that market. So, you know, if you had to, if you had to ask me to forecast where the business and uh, where the future of the art market was, I think Asia is going to probably become the dominant buying area um, but the dominant consigning areas will remain uh, Europe and increasingly the United States. And so our business has got to reflect that. We have, uh, we have to build very strong, good relationships with people who currently have wonderful collections that might think about selling in the future. Uh, and our business in Asia is very much focused on buyers um, and getting those buyers access to the best works of art that happen to be sitting in Europe and, and the United States at the moment. Uh, but it's, it's a hugely exciting moment. And the pandemic, interestingly enough, sort of continued um, and almost supercharged this shift because we saw at Philips, um, our transactions with Asian clients grew by 30% year on year. 
um, not 2019 to 2020, five of the top 10 lots we sold went to Asia. And I think this is just part of a continuing trend, which is why our link up with Polly is so incredibly important because um, Philips effectively um, is going to be tuned in to, I hope, um, the biggest buying community as we go forward, um, which will give huge opportunities for sellers in Europe and uh, the United States to really maximize the value of the art they hold um, by selling through us um, to this new client base in Asia. Does it matter, do you think? Or, or I'm sort of curious to hear how you think it through, because we've seen more um, artists who you would not necessarily have expected to have large client bases in Asia, um, auction houses take their work and sell them in Hong Kong. And uh, some of it is for living artists, some of it is for, um, you know, uh, uh, blue chip artists, as we li like to say, or uh, 20th century ar artists. And it has been an interesting mix over time that not necessarily the works that people thought would do well in Asia uh, did well. So, you know, there's been uh, a lot of experimentation. There's been uh, things that have, you know, as you mentioned, Nara, there have been uh, uh, artists who have emerged as sort of pan-Asian uh, market stars and a lot of demand. And and we know that, um, uh, you know, maybe we don't know this, but uh, uh, one has the impression that Asian buyers are more transactional or more comfortably transactional than traditionally uh, sort of uh, North American or European buyers were, though there's clearly obviously a lot of transactional people in the art market uh, uh, everywhere. So is it because we're now global and doing hybrid auctions, it's easy to source in Europe and and um, sell from Europe and know that you can get the uh, Asian buyers because they're uh, uh, smart, hyper aware and following things? Or do you have to pick and choose things that need to be moved and sold in Hong Kong to, you know, access that uh, 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 pool of buyers from Pali or from Hong Kong and Singapore and, and the, the, the region? I think more and more um, significant works of art will be taken to Hong Kong for sale. We've already seen that actually just in the last few months that, uh, that the the, the, the level of significant post-war American artists that have appeared in Hong Kong auctions now at high prices has, has, uh, has started happening. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, when Phillips joined the fray in Hong Kong with um, 20th century sales about five, six years ago now, um, we were actually the first auction house to, to genuinely mix Western contemporary art and Asian contemporary art in the same sale because we had sensed that, you know, that collecting community had moved on and were no longer just collecting Chinese art. They were really looking at the opportunities that, uh, to, to collect Western art. Um, since then, um, what used to be um, the contemporary art sales in Hong Kong held by the major auctioneers, which were purely Chinese contemporary works of art or Asian uh, uh, contemporary works of art sales, um, all that's changed. And you've seen many, many, many more works of art being sold, you know, Warhol, de Kooning, Clifford Still, David Hockney, etc. They're all appearing now in the Hong Kong sales. So what I'm saying is that the point you made, yes, you could live stream sales and still sell de Kooning in 
in New York and you would probably get Asian bidding on it, absolutely. Um, but there is still no substitute for taking um, these great works about and putting them in front of this new client base and really get, getting them engaged by actually standing in front of the works of art. And so I think we're going to see more of that over the next few years, certainly. And do you see any resistance or doubt on the consigners' parts? You, you, you mentioned earlier so much of this is about the, the, the consigners. Are consigners, do they take convincing if you say, hey, we want to sell this in Hong Kong, we want to sell this Clifford still in Hong Kong, trust us, this is where we're going to get the best price for you? The opposite. Absolutely, 100% the opposite. People want to sell now in Hong Kong. They're coming to us to sell in that sale because of the um, association with Poly. You know, the levels of resistance are zero, as far as I can, I can make up. I mean, there was a concern about um, payment and whether um, mainland Chinese buyers met their payment obligations. And there certainly were some problems and have been problems with that. But one of the great things about um, our poly collaboration is we have a mainland Chinese partner who um, can also deal with the sort of financial arrangements with the bidders that bid for us. Um, and of course, you know, if your partner is working in a jurisdiction um, that has authority over where the bidders are living, it does make um, uh, the enforcement of, of, of buyer contracts much easier than they might otherwise be. Um, if you were sitting in New York trying to um, enforce uh, collection uh, on a sale um, in mainland China without any real jurisdictional power to do so. So the poly collaboration has worked extremely well there um, and has added a, a, a significant extra layer of protection to people who want to sell um, with us in Hong Kong. Talk a little bit about financial arrangements on the consigner side. Uh, you know, as we know, especially with the largest collections, sort of global guarantees are an important part of um, how you win a, a consignment. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of those um, uh, uh, sales, in part, I think, caution about uh, the uh, environment that we're in, though Certainly, it seems there was plenty of demand and there might have been a missed opportunity by not bringing some of these large collections to market over this uh, last year. But y you guys had, for a period, more direct guarantees than your competitors, uh, partially you know, uh, a function of your size and uh, your ability to land uh, consignments. You are competing more for uh, 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 collections. Have you changed the way you do the financing? Is it is it more being able to line up the third party guarantees? Does do you have the financial power to at least make the upfront commitment, sort of a the, the bridge guarantee before you uh, make other third party guarantees to uh, you know uh, secure your risk? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know the move towards. Um, laying off risk in the auction business um, started some time ago and has just gathered steam. And frankly, um, most auctioneers now um, will be pretty resistant about taking direct um, guarantee risk onto their own balance sheet and will be um, doing all they can normally to find partners that they can lay off that risk to. Um, 
And so I think, you know, Philips has been on that journey. Um, a few years ago, you would have seen many more house guarantees at all the auction houses than you see now. Um, and, you know, Philips has evolved with that as well. And, you know, the, there are all sorts of sort of dynamics in the market around these, 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 uh, these financial guarantees. And the third party guarantee has been a very successful um, mechanism for us um, effectively to, to manage our own balance sheet, but also manage the sales, manage the marketplace, etc. Um, you know, if you look at the sales over the last few years since third-party guarantees have become pretty de rigueur, it's a much more consistent sell-through rates. You get many less um, failures at auction. Um, the market, I think, overall has benefited from this and has almost been stabilised um, by this. Uh, it, may, may, it might make, sometimes make the auctions less exciting. Um, and yes, a lot of people will say, well, the trouble with a third-party guarantee means the lot has already been pre-sold um, before it comes up at auction. Yes, but that's, I mean, part of the goal of an auction is setting a price. I mean, I know we all want the drama of bidding and all and the excitement as a, a, a spectator sport, uh, uh, as it were. But the real function of these auctions is to set prices for the consigner, obviously, but also for everyone around it. I mean, much of the business works off of the information provided in public auctions as a way to triangulate whatever you know sales they're doing. And I, I presume that's helped uh, with the functioning of the market, especially in this period where things were shut down and a, a lot was unknown, to be able to see things transact and know at, at a number has helped a lot of other people at least orient their sales. No, I mean, you're, ab you're absolutely right. And I, I, I sometimes think the sort of um, all the sort of conspiracy, conspiracy theorists around, you know, this third party guarantee phenomenon, you know, it is. It's fun to talk about sort of whether there's sort of something behind it that you can't trust, etc. But frankly, um, it's been of huge service to the to the market for everyone, collectors, buyers, auctioneers alike. It's a much more sophisticated way of de-risking auctions for very high value assets. And you know, when I think back in my early career. Um, you know, stretching all the way back to the 1980s and 1990s, which most people won't remember at all. But, you know, when guarantees really started at that time, you know, when I think back at them now, they're absolutely absurd. I mean, the house would take on a $15 million guarantee. Um, the auction would be going fine until that particular work of art bombed, um, failed to sell, and the market almost collapsed at that instance. The rest of the sale was normally a wipeout. Very few people were wanting to bid because they think, oh my God, you know, that was a bit of a disaster. You know, that work of art was then effectively burnt and unsaleable um, for years for that, for that family who were selling it quite often their only asset. And the whole market was sort of significantly damaged at that point by that very high profile failure to sell a perfectly good work of art at a guaranteed amount. So, you know, that was not a good scenario for anybody. Um, and I think now, um, 
you know, uh, consignors um, can sell, knowing that they are going to get good competitive guaranteed amounts of money for what they're selling. They're not going to be left um, with an asset that is sort of burnt uh, after a sale. And the whole market knows that there's a very stable value for these important works of art. And yes, you'll see people competitively bidding and pushing the price up a little bit, taking you know, the, the market to new valuation levels. So um, the, the whole process has been, I think, incredibly important and good for the market. And you know, Philips has, as everybody else has, we've, we've become, I think, very good um, at procuring third parties and laying off risk to the benefit of everybody. And, and I assume you're still working with the same pool. Uh, that your competitors are when, when when we're talking about third party guarantees. I mean, obviously it's an overlapping uh, uh, group, but generally the same. You know, whereas you seem to be developing an advantage with Poly to tap a pool of bidders, that's not necessarily translated into the guarantee market, or or perhaps it is. Are there new guarantors coming into uh, the market? I mean, I still think that the by far the best um, arrangement. Um, is to find someone who really wants to own the work of art that they are backing. You know, so um, we do work with the same group of well-known collectors who like to have the opportunity to, um, to, to, to acquire works or to take the risk on uh, a work by an artist who they admire and collect and would very happily own. Uh, at the level that uh, the guarantee is set at. That's the sort of ideal situation. Um, I think, you know, in a way, the slightly less ideal situation is when you're dealing with, with funds or, in, or investment vehicles that are just looking for opportunities to, to, to take risk on and earn a little bit of money. It's not a bad thing, but uh, it's, it's, not, um, it's not quite the same, I think, as, as laying off risk to someone who really wants knows the artist, knows the work, and really wants to own it. No, that makes sense. And I, I think you know, maybe there were a group of people who came into the market a few years ago and didn't have such a great experience, in part because the market has somewhat, uh, at least in that period from 2016 uh, through 19, sort of plateaued. There, there seems to be a, a lot more movement in different areas of the art market these days. But you know, sort of the overall price level is still you know pretty uh, uh, much standard, which makes it hard if you're looking to guarantee something and then you know flip it in a couple of years to actually get a return uh, for the risk that you're uh, uh, taking on. Um, my final question is just about the watch market. I know that you know the watch business is uh, an important part of what you guys do, and I was just curious about how this whole hybrid auction, you know, transformation is it is it only for these sort of highly visible, um, you know, contemporary art lo lots, or will it actually affect the collectibles market, especially a high value one like the. Uh, watch market. Well, I think the we were absolutely amazed at how successful um, our watch sales were in 2020 at a time when people couldn't visit the um, the sale rooms in Geneva and Hong Kong and New York to view the watches. <coughs> I mean, you know, watches are a, it's a very sort of tactile experience, and uh, you know, we were worried that the sort of the, the the virtual world 
would not lend itself um, to really high-end watch selling. But in fact, it did. The watch sales grew quite significantly, um, amazingly. And once again, um, I'll have to check the statistics, but I think 40% of the watches we sold at auction by value went to Asia in 2020. Um, and they were bought largely um, remotely um, through these live streamed auction events that we were holding. Um, so watches, just like all our other categories, seemed unaffected by um, the problems of selling um, remotely and virtually um, and surprised us all. And I think the watch market, which we're particularly strong in, I have to say, largely because we have, I think, the, the best um, expertise in the market and that department is led by the extraordinary Aurel Bax, sold $133 million worth of auction uh, watches at auction last year, which was a staggering amount. So the whole hybridization uh, could affect the whole market. It's not just the layer of the, the, the top lots. That's, uh, I, I suppose, the most interesting aspect of this as, as we wonder where this business go, goes, that uh, we haven't yet found the boundaries between, and, and obviously as the world opens up again, it'll change things uh, uh, back, I, uh, I'm sure. Ed, I can't thank you enough for, for doing all this. It's been a pleasure. I hope to see you again in person real soon. Thanks for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To get the latest art coverage, visit artnews.com or subscribe to our magazines, Art News and Art in America.